Today's scripture comes from 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. Uh, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make, to make him king. As soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon. Then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Jeroboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the, the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, Go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. And King Rehoboam took counsel with the, with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And he said to him, If you will be servant to his people today and serve them and speak good word to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer the people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him and said to them, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us that you shall say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him. He spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whip, but I will discipline you with scorpion. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Ah, yes, the story of Rehoboam, a very obnoxious and foolish prince of Israel. Um, so as I said before, uh, Pastor Peter will be preaching the word to us, and so let's give him a nice, warm NCF welcome as he makes his way. All right. Can you hear me? All right. Fantastic. Good morning. Welcome to church. It's great to be here again. Uh, for those of us, if we haven't met before, my name is Peter. Um, I'm here with my wife, Jessica, and our four children. They're off in Sunday school. Thanks for having us again. Uh, you know, we were once a part of NCF. NCF is, has a really special place in my heart, so it's a pleasure to be here once again. Uh, many of you know um, that, you know, I, I'm a, I've, I guess I was a trained minister in the past, and I, I've served... On church, I was on staff for a number of years at a church, served as a preaching pastor bivocationally. And all that means is I had a full-time job during the week, but on the weekends I had the pleasure of uh, of preaching God's Word and sharing God's Word with a a local congregation in Flushing. And uh, many of you also know that I've been out of the game for some time. Now that I moved to New Jersey, I've been out of the game. I um, I get opportunities to share the Word here and there like I'm doing right now. Um, And, you know, part of me... Well, you know, I went to seminary, the ordination thing, everything. And part of me wonders, you know, if God will ever call me back into the ministry. And it's a conversation that I have a lot with Jess about the future and stuff. And um, I don't sense a call in any particular direction right now. And I think, I think a part of me is somewhat at peace with that. You know, I, I think it's okay. But 
I realized that if I hold on to that a little too much, what do I become? Uh, I'm essentially a retired pastor, right? A retired pastor. I'm already struggling with like midlife crisis stuff now that I'm over 40 and to call me a retired anything just made me feel old. But anyways, I share this because, uh, you know, my family and I, we've been ten- attending a church in New Jersey that's not too far away from our house. And overall, it's a good church. We're making good friends. Uh, my kids love the Sunday school. Uh, I still have a relationship with God, praise the Lord. You know, not a lot of ex-pastors who get out of the ministry. That's an area of struggle for them. I do still have a relationship with the Lord. I read, I meditate, I talk to God. Although when I pray, I often feel like I'm doing most of the talking. Uh, but I still have that relationship with God. But, you know, for me, uh, now that I'm a lay person, and that's not a ding, right? It's just a term that we use to describe people who go to church. Now that I'm a lay person like many of you, um, you know, as I do my Sundays in and out, I do my work, you know, I go through this routine, I often wonder why church is important. You know, I, I wonder if you guys have asked that question in your own lives. I wonder, I wonder why church is important. I wonder why it's relevant. You know, I talked to a few people. Um, they've gone to church in the past, maybe. And at some point in their adult life, they decided, you know what, church is really not for me. And I asked them, you know, hey, what's up with that? You know, why aren't you going to church anymore? You know, what happened to your walk with God? And they say, you know, life's already busy. I got a lot of things on my plate. You know, why add church to this burden? You know, and then I listen to that. And now that I'm doing my own thing as a layperson, sometimes, you know, in my moments of honesty, I wonder that too. Why, why church? Why, what difference does Jesus really make in my life if you look at it from a third person's point of view? Why Christianity? You know, I still struggle with this question. To this day, I, I struggle with it now as I'm like getting ready to preach to you the word of God. You know, but every once in a while, I will say that God does speak to me through His Word, and He gives me glimpses, He gives me flashes here and there, and He reminds me why our faith is so precious, right? why God is so precious, why Jesus is precious, why the church is so important, why the ministry that you guys are doing here in Queens at NCF is so important, and that if we're doing it right, we really are like that mustard seed. I don't know if you guys have ever seen a mustard seed. I've never seen it before. Jesus always talks about this faith like a mustard seed, but I've never seen a mustard seed before, so I Googled it. It looks like a little peppercorn or a little, you know, the Chinese herbal medicine your mom gives you when you have a stomachache. You ever eat those things? Smell nasty, right? It looks like one of those. But Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. It's like a little mustard seed, right? But if it's done right, eventually give it time and it'll grow. It'll become this gigantic tree where birds come. It's life-giving. Right? That's the kind of ministry that we're called to, all of us. Right? Whether you're on staff, whether you're attending, this is who we are. This is the church. Right? And I think the text that we have before us today in 1 Kings chapter 12, the, fool, the story of foolish prince Rehoboam, it's one of the texts that God used in an unexpected way to remind me of this truth. Remind me of why church is so important. Remind me of why Jesus absolutely makes a difference in our lives. Right here in 1 Kings chapter 12, we see an interesting story about a decision that this guy Rehoboam needed to make, right? By the way, how many of you guys know who the first king of Israel is? Anybody? Shout it out. First king of Israel? Yes, Saul. Who's the second king of Israel? 
David, yes. Third king of Israel. Solomon, fourth king of Israel. That's why everyone goes silent. We know the first three. The fourth king is this guy. This is, this is the fourth guy. Right? This is the son of Solomon right here. Rehoboam. Right? He's the son of Solomon. Right? And we see that he's coronated. Right? He's made king in early in chapter 12, verse 1. He's made the king and now he's faced with his first major decision. And we see that the consequences coming out of the decision would have ripple effects that would change the course of Israelite history forever. Forever, right? And what was the decision that Rehoboam needed to make? Right? What was this crucial decision, this choice that Rehoboam needed to make? Well, we see in our text that there's a man named Jeroboam, right? Just the J instead of Yar, right? More about him a little later. We know from verse 2 that he fled to Egypt, and now he's back, right? And so Rehoboam, the king, gets wind that Jeroboam's back from Egypt. So he calls Jeroboam to his presence, And somehow Jeroboam gets the entire assembly of Israel together and he's there before the king. And he asks the king in verse 4, he says this, Your father, Solomon, made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us and we will serve you. Right? And so Rehoboam responds, maybe wisely at this point, go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. He's asking for time before he decides what to do, right? And let's take a minute here to appreciate what's happening here in our text. Let's understand why this was such a major decision that Rehoboam needed to make, right? Jeroboam, the guy with the J, right? He wasn't just another guy with this ragtag group of laborers, right, who came, right, asking the boss for, like, better working conditions. Hey, I, we need a raise. We need to, you need to make the, the, the workload lighter for us. He wasn't just, like, this random scrub that came before the king, Jeroboam, if you know who he is, was a legitimate threat to the throne. He was a threat to Rehoboam's throne. We see most of the details about who this guy is in chapter 11, that's the previous chapter, but we see some details here in the text that kind of highlights the stuff that was in chapter 11. Right? Notice first, right? we talked about this a little bit, that he brought with him the entire assembly of Israel. The entire nation had his back. How did he pull that off? Right, this guy, this fugitive from Egypt, how did he pull that off? Well, Jeroboam was around when Solomon was still the king. Jeroboam, he was a, a son of a single mom. He was brought up by a single mom. But he was competent. He was able. He was really hardworking. And Solomon noticed this about Jeroboam. So what did Solomon do? He said, Jeroboam, you take care of my forced labor. I have a bunch of slaves who are working on a bunch of projects to build up the infrastructure of my kingdom. Jeroboam, you manage all those people, right? Lots of people to manage. Lots of laborers to manage. Basically, he put, him char- he put Jeroboam in charge of all the people at the very bottom of the social ladder, right? Now, try to imagine how these laborers felt under Solomon's rule. Forced laborers who are there to work for Solomon. Right? Remember who Solomon was. Right? He wasn't just a normal king. Right? The, the text describes him as a guy who had riches galore. Everything he wanted. No pleasure was refrained from him. He writes about it in Ecclesiastes. I know Pastor John did a, a series on Ecclesiastes a little while ago. Right? No pleasure of this world was withheld from Solomon. Right? He built giant buildings, palaces, Temples, 
Who built all that stuff? Who, who labored to enable Solomon to have this opulent life? Who paid their taxes to make Solomon rich? Right? If you had eligible women in your community and Solomon took note of it, he said, you know what? That's not yours, that's mine. Right? Women were treated like objects back in the day. And Solomon had a harem of like a thousand women. Right? You could build a little resentment if you're the guy at the bottom. Right? Maybe some of you guys can connect. Um, there's a lot of articles now about the disparity between CEO pay and the pay of the people on the very bottom. Right? People on the very bottom are normally doing work for the company that the company needs. But a lot of times, these people on the bottom, they don't have prospects about you know, wage increases. Although it's getting a little better now. Right? They don't really have prospects about wage increases. Meanwhile, CEO pay is going up. It's going up the roof. It could build a little resentment. Right? So Jeroboam is leading these people, highly emotionally charged people. They're there with him. Right? Maybe it's not unlike um, how some politicians are, are doing it now. You know, some of the people that perceive themselves to be at the very bottom. Right? But Jeroboam was able to command the assembly of Israel to come with him. Right? He, had their, he had their emotional hooks. Right? Second thing about Jeroboam we need to understand is there was a prophecy spoken about him. Right? There's a prophecy spoken about him. Right? Why did Jeroboam flee to Egypt? Why did he flee to Egypt? Well, we see in chapter 11, right? we see that God loved Solomon very much, but towards the end of Solomon's life, he kind of slipped He's being unfaithful to God. God was being very faithful to him, but Solomon was being very unfaithful for God to God. And the text says that Solomon's heart turned away from God. And God says, as a consequence of your unfaithfulness, I'm going to start to rip the kingdom apart after you die. The kingdom is not going to go entirely to your son. I'm going to rip it apart, and ten of the kingdoms will no longer be yours. Right? And here's what happens. One day, Jeroboam was walking around, this prophet named Ahijah, Right, he's mentioned at the end of our text today. He comes up to Jeroboam and he says, you know what? This is about to happen for real. Right? Ten of the kingdoms are about to become yours. You will one day become the king. And Solomon caught wind of this. And Solomon, being a smart guy, tried to put Jeroboam to death. But Jeroboam escaped. He escaped. Right? I don't know if you're following the story so far, but that's a lot of drama. Right? I know a lot of you guys are looking forward to Game of Thrones coming out in 2019. You know, with the dragons and the kings, who will ascend to the Iron Throne? Right? But man, the power and the drama is right here in the Bible, right? It's in the text that's been sitting on our, our coffee tables this whole time. Right? So come back to our story. Right? Here's Jeroboam, right? This refuge, this fugitive who's come back. He's got this entire assembly of Israel with him. And he's asking the king for a break. And the king is faced again with a major decision. And he must be racking his brain. If I let them easy, will they really hold up to their end of the deal and be my servants forever? Can I really trust him? Do I I grant their request or do I deny them? What does it mean for my kingship if I decide one way or another. And you read and you find out, right, that Jeroboam, uh, Rehoboam, the king, he wisely consults other people to see what they think. Right? And we see two contrasting pieces of advice that Rehoboam received. Right? First, he consults with the old school, right, the old men, the same men that had advised his father Solomon. And they tell him in verse 7, you know, if you'll speak to you, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them, speak good words to them when you answer, then they will be your servants forever. 
right? On the other hand, right, that's one piece of advice that he got. On the other hand, he talks to his buddies, the young men that he grew up with, right? And here's the advice that he that they they tell him to say. You know, they, you know what? You, you know, you should tell Jeroboam and his friends, right? This is what you should say. He said, "Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lightened for us." You'll say to them, "My finger is thicker than my father's thigh." Now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips. I'm going to discipline you with scorpions. By the way, that reference to his little finger being thicker than his thigh, he's not talking about an appendage on his hand. Use your imagination. That's for real, right? That's for real. That's in the Bible, right? And if you read on the rest of our text, right? Jeroboam comes back after three days, just like the king asked. And he goes in front of him, right? And Rehoboam, we, we find out, takes the counsel of his bros, right? Of the young men that were with him. And he tells them, right? Hey, no, I'm not going to lighten the load, right? My finger is thicker than my father's thighs, or whatever it was. It's thicker than my father's thighs, right? I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to make your life harder, right? And Jeroboam says, you know what? Peace out. I'm out of here. Right? And just like Ahijah prophesied, this is what happens. The kingdom gets torn apart. Jer- Rehoboam flees south to Jerusalem. He's managing Judah and Benjamin. And Jeroboam becomes the king of the north. <laughs> Sounds like Game of Thrones again. He becomes the king of the north. The ten kingdoms are under his belt. Right? And that's our story. That's our text. There's no happily ever after. Right? In fact, you read the rest of the Old Testament, there really is no happily ever after. Maybe small victories here and there at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Right? But Israel never became this nation that it once was under David and Solomon. Right? And you know, I think about this text. And I think about the contrasting advice that Rehoboam received right, from the old men and from the young men. And I think, and, and the consequences and all the fallout that happened, I think as I read this text, it, it illustrates to me a very real, tangible truth about life. About two ways of going. About two paths. About two trajectories that have very different and possibly dire consequences depending on which way you go. Right? On the one hand, Right? We see the counsel of the young men, the bros. Right? In many ways, the way they counseled the king is very consistent with the wisdom of this world. Right? What was he saying? Right? He said, Jeroboam, dude, Jeroboam's a threat to you. You've got to control this guy. You've got to assert yourself in front of this guy. You've got to make sure he stays down. Right? What does it take to do that to someone like that? Jeroboam and his people, right? You need to treat people like objects. You need to assert yourself. You need to make sure that he knows that he exists to serve you. The forced laborers on the bottom, they exist to serve you, right? Right? If Jeroboam and his people didn't do the labor, how are you supposed to eat? If Jeroboam didn't do your labor, how are you supposed to have your women? How are you supposed to build your infrastructure that you want to do? Right? And... Brothers and sisters, honestly, we, we buy into this too, don't we? Right? In some respects, we buy into this too. Right? Like, you know, for example, you know, I'm a, I told you I'm a bivocational minister. I have a full-time job during the week. And one of the things that we hear a lot is you've know, you got to go after work, you've got to go to these events, and you've got to network. You've got to network. 
Right? And, you know, I remember when I first heard that term, it was a little weird term. Right? Well, network. Right? And what is networking, really? Right? You're making friends, right? So you can leverage that relationship to further your career. Right? It has this undercurrent of you need to be calculating in your relationships. You need to cozy up to the right people. And if you do, then you can get ahead in your career. It's not just networking. You know, I have some friends who are a little older and they're unmarried, right? And um, I don't know if it's because they're older and unmarried, right? I feel like, you know, when people like fall in love when they're young, it's like, it's more that fairy tale, you know, like they, you know, they, they can fall in love and they can live happily ever after. But I notice, you know, when like my friends get a little older, like, you know, they get a little more calculating in even their love life. Right, they have this mindset of, you know, when they think about prospective spouses, it's not just like, a, it's not just about love anymore. It's not just about falling in love anymore. There's just so much more in the equation, right? They have to have common interests, a common this, a common that. They have to look this way. They have to be this kind of attitude. They have this kind of career. Right, so many more things come into the equation, right? And maybe you have older single friends that are like this too, right? And yes, I think, you know, biblically, you should be absolutely discriminating, you know, when you think about a prospective spouse. But at some point in that spectrum, Right? It's no longer about love. It's no longer about serving the other person. Right? It's about what this person can do for me. What this person says about me. Can this guy or can this girl make me look good? Can this guy or can this girl make me feel good? Right? And I feel bad for, you know, if you're going to date one of my older single friends. That's a lot of pressure to live with. Right? People are objects. They're means to an end. What's another undercurrent in the advice that these bros are giving to the king? Right? They're saying, you know what, Jeroboam, he's a threat to your power. And you need to squash him while you can. And I think, you know, as I think about visually what I see when I hear that advice is separation. You need to separate yourself. You need to assert how much better you are than Jeroboam. Then you can secure your power and stay on the throne, right? You know, there's this uh, famous study done about happiness and money, right? Um, happiness and money, right? It's a thing that, you know, I think about a lot, right? They said, you know, if someone were to say, you know, would you be happier with $50,000 a year or $100,000 a year? The answer seems pretty intuitive, right? Everyone would say, what? $100,000, of course, right? But they found that actually it depends, Right? You're happier with $50,000 if everyone around you only makes $45,000. Right? And you'd actually be sadder, unhappier with $100,000 if everyone around you makes $125,000. Right? It's never about the absolute value of the money. It's always relative to what everyone else has around you. Right? Happiness in the world equals I'm a little better than everybody else. Right? I think we can all connect to that, right? Somewhat, right? You know, I remember when I was a young kid, I was going to KCQ right, at the time, and uh, I remember in the 80s, I don't know why, but my dad and all his friends, what, they, they really liked the big American sedans. You know what I'm talking about? The big American gas-guzzling sedans. And I remember one day, this guy rolled in with a Chevy Caprice. You guys know that Chevy Caprice, right? That big car. He rolls in with a Chevy Caprice. Right? I'm like, oh, Nice car, you know? Get that in the beginning, oh, you know? But, you know, like, 
he rolls in with the Chevy Caprice and it's like now all of a sudden it's not enough for his friend to get a Chevy Caprice. Right? So next week, his friend rolls in with what? An Oldsmobile Delta 88. Oh! Right? And next week, what happens? Oh, if the Oldsmobile and the Chevy aren't enough. Cadillac. Oh! Sedan DeVille. Right? Old school, big cars. And it just went on and on. Right? This is the way of the world. You just can't be the same as everyone else. You need to assert yourself just a little bit to remind yourself that you're just a little better than everyone else, right? And think about the kind of world this creates, right? There's a pressure to keep up. There's a pressure to eat at the right restaurants. There's a pressure to vacation. There's a pressure to make sure that our Instagram feeds look tight. You know, LeBron James, he's one of those guys that really capitalized on this. He posts every workout he does on Instagram, right? And he gets a lot of likes, a lot of sponsors, a lot of money's coming his way. And other NBA players have apparently followed suit. I'm talking like I know what I'm talking about in basketball. I really don't. I just read this article about it, right? But there's uh, these other NBA players that follow suit, right? And then I thought the article was funny. It was online in the article and said, if you didn't post it on, in- on Instagram, did it really happen, right? If you didn't post your workout on Instagram, did you really work out? Right? This is the kind of world that we're starting to live in, right? You know, Facebook's mission, they wrote this in 2004, it says Facebook's mission is to give people the power to build community and bring the world closer together. But let's be honest, you know, with the way we use it, it's not really bringing us closer together, it's actually drawing us apart. And there are a lot of articles that are online from various news sources on all sides of the spectrum that affirm the same studies, that say the same things, that the more we're engaged in social media, the farther it tends to tear friendships and communities apart. We're just getting more and more lonely. We feel connected on our screens, but the reality is existentially in our hearts. We're more and more lonely. You know, it reminds me of the, the reality that C.S. Lewis uh, paints for us in his book called The Great Divorce, right? And The Great Divorce is, a, is his vision of what heaven and hell look like. And in his mind, hell is not a place that's like, you know, necessarily with fire and brimstone, though in reality it might be the way Jesus describes it, the way the Bible describes it, right? But hell, in the mind of Lewis, is this place where people are just so caught up with themselves, caught up with getting exactly what they want. And what happens is, like, these people that were once living together, they start drifting apart and apart and apart, and pretty soon your neighbor doesn't live, like, right next door to you. Your neighbor lives millions of miles away, somewhere else. We think it's making us happy but it's bringing us farther and farther apart. It's the way of the world. That's the wisdom of the world. Right? That's not comprehensive, but I think what happened after Rehoboam took that advice is indicative of what happens in our hearts, what happens to the people around us. Things fall apart. But finally, let's consider the way of the old men in our story, right? These old men were the same men that advised Solomon, who would go down to be the wisest man in history, by the way. And by the way, just because you're old doesn't mean you're wise. I don't think that's what the text is necessarily saying. Although there's something to it, right? The more you live, the wiser you get. Right? But these wise old men, what do they say? It says, if you will be a servant to Jeroboam and his people and serve them, speak good words to them when you answer them. Then, they will be your servants forever. 
right? And the, and the more I, I thought about that advice, right? Trying to speak this advice to someone like a president, someone like a CEO, someone who's up on top, someone like a king. It seems somewhat counterintuitive to what we'd expect, right? It seems counterintuitive. How would you advise a king, force laborers on the very bottom to engage them as if you're their servant, speaking good words? But really, brothers and sisters, and here's what hit me you know, as I was meditating on this text. This is the way that God created the world to work. Right? This is the way God created the world to work. As Christians, we believe that God created the world. Right? Some of you guys read Genesis 1 and 2 and you read it literally, seven days, whatever. Some of you guys read it and you think it's like poetic. You think it's more figurative. Atheists in this room are like, both of you guys are fools. It's obviously science. Whatever, right? I'm saying maybe science doesn't always have all the answers. Maybe it's more descriptive than telling us why the world was created in the first place. But anyways, as Christians, we believe that God created the world. right? And not just the stuff we see around us. God created order. He created structures. He created physical laws. He created quantum mechanics. He created mathematics. He created all that stuff. But more significantly, to the point of our text, to the point of our story today, he also created the world to function in a way where relationships work if you're doing them in an optimal way. He created relationships to work in a certain way. And wisdom, wisdom is recognizing this. Wisdom is recognizing that as people of God, as people who were created in His image, not only do we thrive when we live like God and the way God tells us to live, the people around us thrive as well. Right? And the undercurrent that makes for a wise life, the undercurrent that's behind the advice that these old men are giving to Rehoboam is this undercurrent of love. What makes relationships work is love. Right? Galatians chapter 5, Paul tells us this, that the entire Law is summed up in one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law, the entire counsel of God when it comes to relationships is summed up in one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And here's the thing with God. He didn't just say it. He didn't just say, hey, love your neighbor as yourself. Trust me on this. That's not how he ended it. No, he proved it. He proved it. How did he prove it? Well, if anyone had the right to say things like, my father made your yoke heavy, I'm going to make it heavier. My father scourged you with whips, I'm going to scourge you with scorpions. Anyone had the right to say this legitimately? Of course it was who? Jesus Christ himself. The Bible calls him what? The Ancient of Days. The Prince of Peace. The King of Kings. The name above all names. He's the creator of the world. Nothing gets by him. He is glorious. In him is life. He exudes life. Right? You know, if I hang out with a sick person, guess what happens to me? I get sick. Jesus comes into this world. He hangs out with a sick person. Guess what? The sick person gets better. Right? This is the kind of Jesus, this is the kind of person that he was. Legitimately glorious. Legitimately powerful. Yet, what did he do? How did he live his life? He lived a life of love. He gave up the glories of heaven. 
I, you know, it's like, I was watching, uh, do you guys notice He-Man is on Netflix now? The old cartoon from the 80s. I was watching one episode yesterday, and Skeletor had this mask. Oh, He-Man's a cartoon from the 80s. He's a superhero, right? His enemy Skeletor. Skeletor had this helmet where he put it on, and he could disappear. And no one could see him. And he tricked Prince Adam to come, and he got him in prison. But He-Man eventually escaped. Him. Anyways, he had the ability to become invisible and go anywhere he wanted. Right? You know, I think about Jesus. Before he became a person, what did he look like? He's probably spirit, eternal. Like, he had Skeletor's thing on, like, the whole time. Yet, he humbled himself. And he took the form of flesh, this body, this limited body. Right? This body that he created. He took that form, and he came into this messed up world. Right? And though he was legitimately a king, though he was legitimately the Ancient of Days, the Prince of Peace, though he was legitimately all these things, he wasn't born in a palace, like my children's picture Bible will tell you. He wasn't born in a palace. Right? He wasn't escorted around in a, in a Cadillac or a Chevy Caprice. No, Jesus, he had privilege, but he didn't hold on to it. Right? He lived a life that showed, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, though he had equality with God. It wasn't something for him to be, to be grasped. What does that mean? It wasn't something that he, had, he claimed. Hey guys, I'm the son of God, worship me. That wasn't his attitude. That wasn't his posture. No, Philippians says he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant and he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, Jesus, man, if you hung out with him, if you saw him back in the day, who are the kind of people he hung out with? Who are the kind of people that he made friends with, right? They're not the kind of people with the world's definition of greatness, right? He wasn't kind of, he wasn't hanging out with the influencers, the people with like thousands of followers. No, he was with the outcasts. He's with the people on the margins of society, right? Jesus hung out with sinners, with prostitutes, the sick, the blind, the deaf, the lame, and he embraced them. He healed them. He accepted them, right? People with like nothing to lose, they'd give his life to him and he'd give them a new life. This is the kind of guy that Jesus was. And you know what? Jesus would say crazy things about his kingdom, right? This is Jesus, the king that's embodying these values. He's embodying these values of servanthood. And he'd say crazy things about this kingdom that he's from. He'd say things like, you know, in my kingdom, blessed are the poor. In my kingdom, blessed are those who mourn and hunger. In my kingdom, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who weep. In my kingdom, here's a mysterious thing. The first are last. The last are first. You know, I used to read that in the New Testament. I used to struggle with what that meant. I think I'm kind of getting it. First is last. This is going to be the reality. I can't conceive of a world right now where first is really last and last is really first. But he's saying, man, when my kingdom comes, this is the way it's going to be. You better want to be last. Greatness in my kingdom is not measured by how many likes you have on your posts, how many followers you have on your Instagram. Greatness in my kingdom is measured by how much you serve, how much you put yourself out there, how much you give of your life. Right? In my kingdom, people exist to love. People exist to serve. People exist to give where you're not there because you've merited your way in. You're not there because you're smarter, you're richer. No, you're there because God loves you. 
people like this who belong to a kingdom, to a city. You know, there's so much Old Testament imagery about what the promised land's supposed to look like, what the Garden of Eden looks like, a land flowing with milk and honey. Man, it's such sensual cues that describe what the kingdom of God is like. And Revelation 22 point, paints us a, an ultimate picture of what that looks like. It's a, a river of water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God. Where there are trees of life, you eat of it and you live forever, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are there for what? The healing of the nations. And I don't know about you guys, if you gave me a brochure, right, that gave me the best of what the world can offer, and you gave me a brochure about this kingdom and the people and the culture in it, I'll take the kingdom anytime. I'll take the kingdom anytime. Because right? I know my acceptance into that kingdom isn't about me, it isn't about what I bring to the table. Right? My acceptance into the kingdom is about love. It's about God accepting me and embracing me for who I am. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. You don't have to work for your place here in my kingdom. I will give you rest. Lose your life in me. And I'll transform you into a child of glory. That's his plea to us. So to kind of wrap this all back with what I shared in the beginning, you know, as I think about church, as I think about my Christianity, as I think about my relationship with Jesus Christ, you know, I need the church, brothers and sisters. I need the church so I can hear this gospel, this good news. Right? In spite of all the clutter that I get from the world, I need the church to tell me, to testify to this truth that it's not just a pie in the sky. That the resurrection proves that this will be the kingdom that will one day come. I need the church to remind me of this reality. I also need the church to feel this reality. I need the church to come and love me for who I am, to accept me for who I am, not network with me, not leverage me to, to further their own agenda. I need the church to embrace me as just Pete for who I am. And finally, I need to see the church in action. I need to see changed lives around me that remind me that this stuff isn't fairy tale. It's real. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for uh, this time together. And we thank you, Lord, that um, God, it's like, it's kind of weird. We're like this small group of people renting out a space in St. John's. You say is like this mustard seed. Right, where when it's planted in this community, when it's planted in Queens, right, there's nothing significant or special about us. But you say if we, if we do it right, Lord, if we, if we reject the values of this world and we embrace the wisdom of how you created the world, how you created relationships to work, that somehow this small seed germinates and it grows and it becomes a part of this huge, giant structure, glorious structure that you've been building from the very beginning of which Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. 
Father, I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone in this room that struggles like me, in moments of doubt, in moments of unsurety, wonder why, church, why Jesus, why this faith, Lord, remind us of this truth. That though we have this treasure inside jars of clay, we look like nothing on the outside, but inside is something glorious. Inside is something, a future, a certain future that we have to look forward to. Thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.